I woke up early this morning, um, not just because it was our anniversary service, but, you know, I, uh, I mean, after you have kids, I guess you can't really sleep in. There's no weekend sleeping in anymore, right? And so even on Sundays, as I, as I get up, um, I went downstairs by myself. I sat on my, my little spot there on the sofa. And as I just began to meditate and pray for our service, um, I mean, I'm not the most, like, um, eloquent with my words and the most artistic, but I sat there and God gave me a poem for you, okay? Can I, can I read you a poem? Uh, the poem is titled, as I wrote it, The Sun in Our Eyes. On Easter 2013, we pushed out into new waters. With the sun in our eyes, courage came from our Father. A place of photography became our altar of sacrifice. So thankful for these beginnings because it established worship's true price. Trying new things, figuring it out, we were finding ourselves, and sure, we had doubts. But press on we did, lines in the sand, never fully set, but led by His hand. We're sailing onward. Sure of distant shores, with the sun in our eyes, we know there's still more. Touching our cities and loving our families, this is our heart and the vision we see. Sharing God's love, being neighborly, Christ is the only hope for you and for me. And so we celebrate today for all to see and hear. Love is our response. Please know that you're welcome here. That was a poem. Thank you for the backdrop. That was my amateur attempt to be poetic, but it was really a prayer of remembering where we came from as a church and as we go forward into another ministry year and, you know, the many years that are in front of us to really pray that love is always our response and that we welcome all those who come into our church. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, today's message is along those lines, and it's titled Love's Face. If you could flip to two places, take your sermon card and bookmark Luke chapter 10. And after you've bookmarked Luke chapter 10, if you could find your way to 1 John chapter 4. Luke 10 and 1 John 4. I'll go ahead and I'll read First John first. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Now, if you can go to Luke chapter 10, this will be a parable of the embodiment of what we just read in 1 John 4, starting from verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him, speaking of Jesus, to the test. And he said this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and he said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance a certain priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Amen. This message, Love's Face, is to get in your face and to clearly say to you that you are the expression of God's love. When 1 John 4 says that God is love, that He is the embodiment of everything that is love, of all the good that is pertained within that concept, that virtue, and that action. Many brands, they have faces, don't they? Nike, they have Jordan and Tiger. Under Armour has Curry and Spieth. But love, it has you and me. That when we think of what love is and how love is represented and how love wants to be represented in our world, we must understand that I as a lover and follower of Christ am the face of love. That I am love's face. And I hope that you would understand today that you are love's face. Now, a disclaimer to the passage in Luke 10 of this Good Samaritan and the good that he did, the disclaimer that I want to give today is I want us to know that everything we do in the Christian life is a response to God's love, is a response to it. That I need not earn God's love, that He has loved and showered me with love and with mercy. That I can wake up every morning, whether I go to work or not, whether I do good or do evil, That I can wake up with Christ in my heart, the Spirit indwelling me, and say that I am loved that day. That I am loved by God. Now, I might assume that some of us have a difficulty with that statement. That I am loved. Why do I say that? Because I think there is something within human nature that wants not to believe that. Because we've been conditioned at times through different environments to believe that our love or the love that people have for us is so hinged or dependent 
upon the things that we do for other people. It starts from a young age, doesn't it? I mean, we have, Jenny and I, two boys, right? Jacob and Christopher, now six. Christopher will be four in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I remember when our first son, Jacob, was just becoming a toddler. And, you know, I've always wanted to be, and hopefully I am, an affectionate father. I've always wanted to embrace them, to not be afraid, to be affectionate towards them, to tell them that I love them, to stroke their hair, to sleep next to them, and to hold their hand, to walk them through the seasons of life, and to let them know without a shadow of a doubt that Daddy loves you. I've always wanted that to be the case, and and I've tried that, and and I've tried to do it consistently. And I remember when Jacob was a a toddler, he uh, was doing something and I had to discipline him for what he was doing. And I remember the first time I ever had to spank him. I I got the first thing that was available to me was a clothes hanger, right? It was one of those plastic things. I got spanked by a wooden ladle, right? And uh, I don't know what you guys got spanked by, if you ever got spanked. But I remember having to discipline him. And when he was being disciplined, the first thing out of his mouth... Was Daddy, do you still love me? And I remember having to wrestle with that statement or that question. That somehow this young boy thinks that I, as his father, don't love him in this moment because I'm correcting his behavior. That he did something wrong in my eyes. That I was displeased with his action. And somehow that displeasure equated to the drying up of my love for him as my son. And I reassured him just with all the, the strength in my, in my heart. Yes, Daddy loves you. It's this action that I, I'm trying to correct, but don't, don't worry. Daddy loves you. I will always love you. And I remember having to reassure him of that. And you would think that this young child, after one moment of great reassurance, would grow out of this and always think that daddy loves him no matter what. But of course, those moments would creep back every time, whether I had to discipline or whether I had to to show some displeasure. I remember recently as he was in kindergarten, when he first started, they started to give out homework in kindergarten. I don't remember having homework in kindergarten. Do you all remember having homework in kindergarten, right? Well, I, he has homework, right? And they started to, to learn words and cite words. And they started from two-letter words. And they're graduating now. And the longest word, this is cite words like because and, you know, these longer words. And I remember him having spelling tests every Friday morning. And, you know... Um, I wasn't the most diligent Jenny and I with like going through his words uh, on a weekly basis. And in the beginning, he would have some trouble with this. And I remember going to the first parent-teacher conference and, you know, uh, being on the receiving end of the small, you know, they sit you down on the small table, right? And I feel like a child behind us sitting on this chair, right? And the teacher's on the other side. And she's going through like the performance report card of everything that is proficient, things that are uh, average and the things that need improvement. And some of the things that needed improvement were his... Uh, sight words, the spelling. And I remember like feeling pierced. I was like convicted, like, man, that's my fault. I, I didn't teach him. I didn't study with him uh, on a weekly basis, right? And so I, I, I took it upon myself. I said, okay, you know what? I am now going to be diligent about going through this young boy's spelling words on a weekly basis. And I remember when I first started this, right? And then so we took his little sheet, three words a week, no, sorry, four words a week, and we would go through them, and he would have trouble with recognizing some simple words, and I found myself, like I was thinking about the teacher-parent conference, and how uncomfortable that was, and, and everything, and I started to get a little impatient, and as a young kid, he caught that, 
that I was impatient with him. Like, can't, like in a sense, can't you get it? Don't you, don't you know what it says? And he said it again. Daddy, do you still love me? And now, since he was three until six, for the last three years, I've been trying to reassure this kid that I love you, and it is not by what you do, but because you're my son. But isn't that our tendency? Isn't that our tendency to feel loved when we do things absolutely well, when we pass the test, when we perform well, and when others speak well of us? But I want us to know today that I'm loved. And that really is the first place that I want to start today. Just those simple words. I'm loved. If that doesn't sit well with you, if that has a hard time rooting in your heart and for you to say that to yourself, that I am loved, I pray that God's love would just shower over you in this moment. That somehow there would be a convicting voice reminding you and telling you right now in this moment, The God who created everything loves you. That when you woke up this morning, you were loved. Not because you look good, look the part, and you did something. But because He chose to love you this day. And that really is the foundation of what I want to say in this particular message. That God loves us. And isn't that one of the verses we read in John 4? In this is love. Not that the love originated with me. Not because I had the presence of mind to love God first, but love is defined because God loved us. That that is the genesis, that's the beginning point, that everything else that comes in the Christian life is a response to the love that was first given to us by our great God. That is the beginning. But it goes on, doesn't it? In verse 11, the next verse, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us. If. And that is an affirmative statement, if you are a, a follower of Christ. That if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. And it seems as though when God loves us is a beginning point, but not an exclamation. It is not a period after that. You know that old children's song, Jesus loves me. I'm not the best singer, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. That is a great song, right? It teaches young children that Jesus loves them. That it is not by performance, but because of identity, right? But even that song is incomplete. That when we teach that just God loves me, and then that's it. We, we, we're there, and yes, that's the truth, but there needs to be something that goes from there, that God loves me, and if God loves me, I also ought to be an extension of that same love to others that are around me. And I wrote in your sermon outlines, right, that the Gospels begin with an incarnation. Isn't that the love of God? When God says, I will uh, not take this and just stay in heaven all by myself, but I will choose to leave heaven. I will empty myself and I will take on the form of a servant and humble myself to the point of death. Isn't that love from God? The incarnation of, of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to rub shoulders with humanity, to take upon Himself 
himself, the infirmity of us all, isn't that love? Isn't that taking, taking all of the good that he had and saying, I will not grab a hold of this. I will leave the penthouse and come down to the lobby with you. I will welcome you in. I will eat with you. I will die, I, 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 I will die for you. That this is love. God loves us. And that is the beginning or the genesis of the Gospels. But what begins in that way, it ends with the commission. Right? It starts with a baby in a manger, the hope of the world, but it ends with Christ saying, you have a purpose, that the love that I've given to you, the time that I spent with you, the words that I shared with you, all of that was so that now you are prepared with the Holy Spirit soon to be given to you. You now have a mission in life that God's love gives us a purpose. It gives us a hope and a reason for our days. That's the gospel when you think about it, starting from hope and love and incarnation, but finishing with mission, with purpose, with us being instruments of love. And so that's the second thing that I say. First was I am loved. And for us to believe that, to know that, to rest in that truth. But secondly, to know that I am love's face. When the Bible says God is love, and He wants a celebrity endorser, a representative in the world for his brand of love. He chooses us. He chooses us as his face to say that will you represent me well in the world? Will you be my face of love to those that desperately need it, that have been in the dark, that have not heard the message of hope, of Christ, of the Incarnation? They haven't been to the beginning parts of the gospel yet, but you have, and you know the end, and you have a mission. And so then let us be the instrument, the person by which this message of love is shown and shone to the places that have yet to hear this message that I am God's face, the face of love. And so we get to the parable of this good Samaritan. The entire foundation of this talk that Jesus is giving with this man is about a question of inheriting eternal life. So it's really about heaven, right? It's about kind of understanding when this time ends, there's a frame of existence that's beyond the world, eternal life, and he's asking Christ, how do I get there? How do I inherit that? And so he poses the question back to him, what's written there in the law? And he answers about loving God with all that we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And he's saying, yeah, okay, you do that. You're going to live, Jesus says to him. And somehow feeling uncomfortable with Jesus' response to him, whether he felt that he couldn't love in that way, whether he felt condemned, he was trying to justify himself in that moment. And he would say, okay, wait a minute, I'm not going to try to prove you wrong, but at least tell me then who is my neighbor. And so that's when Jesus goes into this talk. The infamous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you've been in church circles any amount of years, you've probably heard and known that that road is a dangerous road. And so Jesus, understanding the setting of that back alley, he sets it there. And it wasn't uncommon for people to be robbed or beaten on this road. And so there was a man that was beaten on this road. He was robbed, taken of everything, stripped, beaten within an inch of his life. And he's lying there bloodied and dirtied on the ground. And three people walk by. The first is a religious folk. He's a priest. 
One who does rituals and leads in the temple. One who teaches the truth. One who is trying to lead God's people closer to God. And this man walks down this road. By chance, he found himself there. Whether it was his first time down the road or one of many. On that occasion, there was this bloodied, half-dead man on the road. And seeing him way down there, he says, Whoa, that looks pretty difficult. So it says he passes along the other side. And the man is still there. He can't get up by himself. And Jesus says, chance hit another time for this man. Another religious man, a Levite this time, comes to that same road. And you would think that he would stop if the priest didn't. But Jesus goes on and says, well, he saw the man lying there half dead. And he crossed over to the other side as if not to see him, to let anybody know that he saw him. And still the man lies there. Story goes, another man. And as soon as the listener to Jesus heard the description of this man, Samaritan, as soon as he heard that, his ears would have perked, right? And not perk in a good way, perk in a negative way. It's like when you hear of of something that really just kind of just wrenches at your gut, whether it's a name or a thing or a place, whatever it is, this man would have just churned at the name, description, Samaritan. And so now he's listening, right? First the priest, then the Levite, they all pass by. He's like, ah, these religious guys, what are they doing? And then Samaritan comes into the story. Now he's really listening because Samaritans and Jews did not have a good history, did not have a good relationship. No one would have blamed a Samaritan for not helping a Jew. No one would have blamed a Jew for not helping a Samaritan. They were on opposite sides of of a cultural war. They despised one another. And so the enemy comes, the one who was disliked, the one who disliked, came to that road, saw a man, clearly recognized him as a Jew, and yet this man did not pass along the other side. And he was the only set of feet that went right to him. Not worried about his clothes getting blood or his knees getting dirty. He kneels down. And he bandages his wounds, whether he ripped his own garments. And he takes his precious oils and ointments and wine and he dresses his wounds. And he says, you know what, I'm going to walk the rest of the way because i got healthy legs right now. You get on my beast. And he takes him to an inn. He doesn't just drop him off to the innkeeper wishing him well on his way. He stays with him that night. And the next morning he gets up visits the head of that establishment, plops down two weeks' worth of money. He says, I'm going to come back. And when I do, please, if you spend any extra money taking care of this man, I'm good for it. And in that moment of silence, I can imagine just quietness in this conversation. Jesus goes back to the question. Remember what it was? Who is my neighbor? So he asks, who do you think? was the neighbor to that man who fell half dead among robbers. And the guy, he doesn't even want to say Samaritan. He doesn't even say the description Samaritan because that's how much they didn't like each other, right? You don't even want to to dirty your tongue with, with talking about that person's name. And he says the one who showed mercy. Absolutely. He says go and do the same. Isn't it 
so easy for us to try to insulate ourselves. But the Bible says that this is the love of God that was manifested in us. And I highlighted that for you because I want you to know to manifest is to display, to show up, to show one's head that it's manifested, that it's not unclear where this stands. That I will put my name on this. That love was manifested. It took root somewhere. And where did it take root? The Bible says it took root in us. The love of God was manifested in us. That Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, came into the world that we might live through Him. The Bible is emphatic and clear when it says that Christ's followers are to be the shiners, the illuminaries, the face of God's love to the world. And that is our calling, isn't it? And so when we as a church celebrate four years, and yes, going on to year five, what is the roadmap? We have mission statements and ideologies and teachings, and a lot of that has changed in the last four years. And, you know, that was kind of what I was alluding to in that poem, that lines were drawn in the sand. It's like the waters came and we had to redo the lines again. Unsure of the, of the path that is before us. But one thing is clear, and one thing must be clear, is that we must have our eyes onto the sun, Jesus Christ, knowing that there is a mission and a purpose given to each and every one of us, regardless of where our affiliations lie with a church or in a space, but it's with Christ that God has called me to love. But I find too often that I insulate myself. You know, isn't this the case? I mean, don't we try to, to with our houses and our locks and our passwords and our cars, don't we try to insulate ourselves? I mean, I've shared a story, I think, with some of you before. I mean, you know, we live in gated communities with garage doors. And, you know, even some of my neighbors, you know, usually when I get out of the car, I, you know, that garage door close button that's next to the entrance of your garage, you press it there, right? But some folks, like, close it as soon as they get in, right? It is like they, they press it from the car. And I was like, wait, why do you press it from the car? Like, why are you, right? But isn't that the tendency? that we have. We gate ourselves off from disruptions, from discomforts. And that's exactly the folly of the priest and the Levite, isn't it? It's not that they didn't look religious. It's not that they didn't know virtue. It's that they were insulated. And they did not want to let a bloodied, half-dead man disrupt their day. Maybe they were off to teach in the temple. Maybe they were off to a service project. Maybe they were going someplace with the religious responsibility in front of them and they had to get there and they were on a, on a clock. Right? And so whenever we, we have this, we have this kind of bubble that's around us that insulates us from trouble, from danger, from damage, from being late. And how wide that bubble is varies from person to person, but we all have one of these. And this bubble is intended so that these disruptions ricochet off, that they have no room to enter, and there's only that certain certain threshold that we allow in. You know, I'm not proud of this, and it's kind of like a little petty example. In our little townhome community, we have one particular gentleman that lives like, you know, it's like you have a front entrance of the gate you have the mailboxes you got a path that goes all the way down and it turns left and our house is like almost at the very end you go all the way down to the left and it's right there and 
right on the corner. As soon as you come all the way down and right there on the corner facing this way as you're walking down this path, there's a gentleman. Uh, I won't name him, I won't describe, but you know, he's a very talkative gentleman. Very talkative. He's the type of person that when you have a conversation with, it's hard to find an end to the conversation. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it's whether it's kind of like, you know, just a little awkward at times, right? And, you know, there are times, and he's always sitting out on his little patio chair, you know, sipping some wine and smoking a cigarette, right? And uh, it's a little embarrassing, like, sometimes when I have to go and check the mail, I, like, peek out. (laughs) It's really embarrassing for me to admit that. And, uh, like, I've tried, like, I, I've had long conversations when, you know, especially when the kids were younger and, like, I rushed out to, to get the mail when they were taking a nap or something. Like, and, like, it's like you try to get back quickly. And I've had long conversations. But I've learned that if I need to get somewhere quickly, I need to just check the mail to see it and then get, get like, I have to make sure that I don't run into him. And isn't that this for me? Isn't that the insulation that we put around ourselves to say, wait a minute, at this moment it's going to be a little bit larger. And only when we feel we have the room or the time or the emotional capacity do we shrink it down and say, okay, now you can come into my space. But what Jesus is teaching here about being neighborly is about allowing ourselves to be disrupted. Disrupted. Another title for this message could have been Faith Disruption. About God coming in and shaking things up and saying, you know what, you have your timelines and your schedules and your routes, but I want you to know that you are my face. That the people you see every day, you're my face. That when they see you, they see me, or they should see me. And this doesn't mean having no boundaries, of course, because boundaries are healthy, right? I mean, if we have no boundaries, we're going to go crazy in life. Yeah, we need boundaries. But it's about de-insulating ourselves to a certain extent and taking on the responsibility, the mission of being a face of love, a face of God. And to not allow religion to be my insulator. And so easily I think it can. I was sharing with our Friday group this past week that I think sometimes service in the church can be so sanitary, and I fall into this error all the time, that service is a project, that there are serve days on specific days of the month at time slots in the day, and that's when I go to serve, and I pat myself on the back for serving that day. Yeah, I did a good job, right? I, I did good. But serving God is more than just in designated time slots. It's more than just saying, I will go when I have the openness. But it's about reorienting things a little bit. About knowing that God says, I endorse Him. That I represent Him. And to know that the life of this Samaritan that is called good is a life that God calls us to if we are a follower of Christ. To not allow religion to be a wall that separates us from others, that defines us or distinguishes us, that I believe this and you believe that. And that's what religion is, right? It just defines us. 
but it's not a wall of protection or of definition. Religion is a platform, a foundation, and a bridge. A foundation to to root our identity. A bridge to bring others to God. This is the hope and message of this parable that Jesus is giving. And so if you have difficulty loving God or, or loving others in this way, I don't want to guilt you into that. And all I ask is, according to this quote, I love this quote by this Baptist preacher, Alexander McLaren. He says, The world would be a changed place if every Christian attended to the sorrows that are plain before him. And we don't have to, 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 to be the solution to every need out there. I don't have to search out every person in my community. All I really need to do is be willing to serve the needs that are plain before me, that are presented to me, that God brings in front of me. And to do this, I give you another quote by Charles Spurgeon. Let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. That if you have a difficulty serving or loving God or others, as is described in this parable, just begin with the gospel. Begin with the truth and the affirmation that you are loved. That laws have all of these written requirements and duties. But what precedes all of that, what enables all of that, is the gospel, is the incarnation, is the indwelling of God's Spirit. That this is the beginning. And You know, I was thinking, I think I wrote this on your sermon cards too. I woke up 4 a.m. on Friday morning this past week because I had a bad dream. I had this, it was a horrific dream, right? I had this dream of a man being stabbed like like dozens of times like down the neck and spine. And it was like, I wasn't like waking up in cold sweats, but I was like, oh, like, oh, that's that's not good. And I woke up at 4 a.m. I saw the clock and somehow... I was thinking about my sermon and this particular parable as I woke up. And I was fumbling through some things and I just got my phone and I, and I, and I wrote something down, a little note. And it was this question. That if my faith or religion doesn't move me to help a half-dead man by himself who poses no risk but requires my time, what good is that faith and religion? I was asking myself that, right? If my, 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 my faith in God, it does not compel me or push me towards a man who is clearly distraught, what good can that religion do for me? There is something misled or, or misguided, faulty, cracking in its foundation. And so the beginning and genesis of this message is to embrace the truth I am loved, and the second is to know That I am love's face. We all know those that know the Bible well. But let's be the folks that live out the Bible. I mean, you've known people that are book smart and people that are really smart. Book smart, you do well on tests. Really smart, you do well in life. You know, type thing. That's, That's kind of like the difference between the two, right? And there's religious good. And there's really good. The priest and the Levite might very well have been religious good. They weren't really good. I want to be classified or or linked 
with the type of life and heart condition of that good Samaritan. That represents the gospel and it represents the heart of Christ. And So thank you for celebrating with us here on this fourth anniversary. But I ask that it doesn't stop there. I ask that you do something even greater. I ask that you, you bind the wounds of the hurting, that you fill the stomachs of the hungry, that you need not go and search every need, but serve the needs that are before you. And as an application, as a praise team, you guys can come back. I leave you with a couple of statements, and the first is this. Help needs plain before you. The ones that are just in front of you. The ones that are, are in earshot and in eyesight. That you see it, you hear it, you know it. Those are the needs that God is calling you to be on mission for. Help the needs that are plain before you. And secondly, break down the insulators. Break down those things that are the barriers between allowing people to come into your space to cause a little bit of discomfort and disruption and to know that God can use you in a profound way to shine His love and to be a vessel and a spokesperson of hope. Will that be us? Amen? Amen. Amen.